I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to open with a word of prayer. Let's uh, bow before the Lord and recognize His presence here this morning. Lord God, You are Almighty, Sovereign, our Creator, our Judge, our Redeemer. We thank You for the rain that much of our city got yesterday. Uh, Lord, because You are Sovereign, uh, we know You're Lord over history. And we pray for what's going on in Afghanistan. As we gathered here last week, we had no idea what would have happened between then and now. We pray for those families, uh, not just the 13 soldiers that were killed, but also, last count, around 200 other people have died, Afghans and other nationalities. We pray for their families, uh, the comfort and carry them. Uh, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ in Afghanistan who, uh, if they can't get out of there, it's, uh, they have a price on their head. And we pray for Christians around the world who are undergoing persecution that can't do what we're doing here this morning. If they did, it would cost them their lives. Lord, throughout history, you, you have watered the seeds of faith by the blood of the martyrs. And it's no exception in this century as well. But redeem what's going on in Afghanistan. And Lord, we pray uh, for this COVID pandemic that you would bring it to an end and also that uh, you would uh, heal those who are battling it. And um, again, redeem it. Help us as individuals and as a church to learn what we're supposed to learn going through this pandemic as to how to be more authentically the body of Christ in a time of crisis. Lord, bless our time together here today. Um, guard me from saying anything stupid or that would lead anybody astray. And may we all come out of here better theologians and encouraged in Christ. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I know it was before 1983 because we didn't start having new member classes at First Pres till 1983. And so uh, every Sunday after each one of the services, we'd give an invitation that if you wanted to join First Presbyterian Church, go to the Griffith Chapel off the Narthex, and a pastor and a few elders will be there to talk with you and receive you into the life of the church. So we'd rotate it around, which pastor would do it every week. And so one week it was my turn, so I showed up in the Griffith Chapel, and there were about three elders with me. And a guy walks in, and he says, it's my first time here. Uh, and I sat down with him. We had a form for him to fill out. And I said, how are you going to join? And I explained the three ways, profession of faith, reaffirmation, or transfer of letter. He said, well, I've never professed faith in Christ. So I was like, wow, this is going to be great. We're, uh, you know, a real live profession of faith. I went over the five constitutional questions with him that I said, I'm going to ask you these questions before the elders, and uh, that will constitute your profession of faith, blah, blah, blah. So he filled out the forms. I said, are you ready? Yes. So I stood him up there with me, and I said, this is Frank Smith. He's going to be, he wants to join First Pres." introduced the elders to him, and I said, okay, Frank, uh, let's begin with the questions. Question number one, do you recognize yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God, uh, uh, justly uh, displeasing to him, and without hope, save in his sovereign mercy? And Frank said, no. <laughs> the elders are looking at each other, looking at me. I'm like, uh, so, uh, Frank, uh, the answer to that question is yes. I'll never forget his reply. He said, oh, I thought if I told you that I was a sinner, you wouldn't allow me into the church. 
You know, that is one of Satan's myths out there, that the church is for good people. That if you go to church, you think you're better than anybody else and you're righteous and all that kind of stuff. When you walk in the doors at First Presbyterian Church or any other church, in reality, what you're proclaiming to the world is, I am an abject sinner and I can't save myself. I need hope because I'm hopeless without a Savior. That's what you were saying when you came into this building today, whether you thought that or, or not. Um, you know, the church can learn a whole lot from AA. AA was started by two drunk Presbyterian elders back in the 1930s. Uh, it was totally Christ-centered. They just took the gospel, and that's the 12 steps is the gospel. And if you've ever been to an AA meeting, uh, you know, if somebody gets up to speak, they say, Hi, my name is Ron, and I'm an alcoholic. And then everybody goes, Hi, Ron. And there's no judgment, you know, there's no um, uh, arrogance at AA. You know, everybody's on the bottom or near on the bottom, and they're not, you know, condemning each other. They're there to help each other. I used to say, uh, I've said it in this pulpit in Highland Park Present Dallas, I said, you know, we need to really look at AA and, and recover uh, what we can recover as the church, as, with them as a model. I said, I ought to begin worship every Sunday by saying, hi, I'm Ron, and I'm an abject sinner. And then you all should respond, hi, Ron. You know. Then we begin worship. So, uh, you know, we live in a day and age, though, where people don't like to talk about sin, or they want to uh, candy coat it or whatever. Well, we're going to talk about sin this morning uh, as we enter into the first of the uh, TULIP, an acronym, uh, T stands for total, I mean, total depravity. And I'm going to tell you what it doesn't mean and then tell you what it does mean. I took one verse from the, or one section of scripture, uh, three verses from Jeremiah 17, 9 through 11. And I could give you a hundred verses, but I'm going to try to keep this simple. And I'm just going to kind of exposit that this morning and talk about what is this thing called total depravity. Reinhold Niebuhr, who uh, was a 20th century theologian, he was pretty good on some things. I don't like some of his other stuff. But he did say this that I agree with. He said, uh, the doctrine of original sin is about the only Christian doctrine that we have empirical evidence for. I mean, look at a newborn. Usually their first word is either no or mine. And, you know, pediatricians will say, you know, you really got to watch your baby. Uh, if you knew what was really going on in there, he probably wants to kill you because he wants something from you. If you don't get it, where does that come from? Well, uh, before we get into that, some of you are new here and you missed the introduction to Reformed theology last week. So I thought I'd just give us a little fly at 50,000 feet over some of the things we learned last week. Uh, and then we'll get into total depravity. You know, we talk about the Reformation out of which Reformed theology came, although it really didn't. Reformed theology was really Augustine, uh, and the Reformers, Calvin and Luther, were trying to get back to reforming the church according to St. Augustine. But we say 1517, when Luther nailed his 95 theses to the Wittenberg castle door, that's when the Reformation began. But in reality, there were many, many Reformers and Reformation movements in the centuries leading up to the 16th century. So why didn't they take hold? What was different about 1517? Well, you know, we talk about how social media has changed 
the world that we live in today, and I've heard a guy say it's probably been the downfall of America. It, it's, it's disemboweled us and got us at each other's throats and we don't think anymore, we just go by emotion. And well, the reason the 1517 Reformation took hold was because of the latest social media of the day. A man named Johannes Gutenberg invented the printing press. Until then, if you believed something and you wanted somebody else to know about it, you wrote it down, put it in a letter, or had a courier take it. And these other movements, um, you know, by the time it reached the person three months later, maybe you changed your mind and they weren't really interested in it, it just bleh. But suddenly, the printing press arrives. Luther's 95 Theses were not for lay people. They were not to start a reformation. They were to engage his fellow academics at the University of Wittenberg in some debate because he was concerned over what was happening in the Roman church. If you read the 95 Theses, you go, wait a minute, he, he, he's okay about purgatory here. He's even okay about indulgences, and he was at that time. Um, what really sparked Luther was this whole idea of indulgences that, you know, if you could pay a certain amount of money, you get out of purgatory quicker. He didn't disagree with the idea of purgatory or even indulgences. It's just that his parishioners were pretty poor. And all these rich people were able to get out of purgatory uh, easily because they could afford it, but his poor parishioners couldn't. That's his basic beef. In the middle of that, though, as he's debating that, and we're, but anyway, somebody gets a hold of his 95 theses. They're in Latin. They translate them into German. Then they print them and send them all over, and suddenly everybody is in on the conversation, and Luther gets more mature. He, be, he begins a back-to-the-Bible movement, and Calvin comes after Luther. They overlapped a little bit. They never met. They did correspond by letter. And you have what we call the Reformation occurring. And there are actually three streams in the Reformation. Uh, Lutheran, after Luther, and that was the least radical. Luther never did these guys have any idea about starting another church. It was to reform the church. Uh, and Luther wanted to change it as little as possible. He just wanted to throw out anything that didn't seem to line up with Scripture. Calvin and the Reformed part of the Reformation was more radical. Um, he wanted to kind of push everything aside, then only put back in what Scripture clearly sanctioned. Then you had a third stream, the iconoclast, called the Anabaptists. They just wanted to destroy the church and rebuild it on the model of the first century church. You know, some of us are worried about our country. There's people that seem to want to just tear down everything and rebuild. That's kind of the Anabaptists in the Reformation. And they wanted to go back to the first century church. And as I said last week, you know, occasionally somebody comes to me and says, what we need to do is get back to being like they were in the first century. And I always go, ah, when was the last time you read the New Testament? The first century church was full of heresy and dissension and bickering and fighting and moral depravity. And um, that's not Calvin and Luther. They wanted to go back to the fourth century, the golden age of theology, Augustine. Luther was an Augustinian monk. Calvin was Augustinian. His dad wanted him to be an 
lawyer. He wanted to be a priest. He became a lawyer, but then he became a pastor. But the Reformed Church is Augustinian in its theology. And Eco, First Press San Antonio, we're all Augustinians. Um, and a word about the five points of Calvinism. Calvin would be appalled that anything had his name on it. He was a very humble guy. He was a very warm, humorous guy. He gets caricaturized as dour and all this. There's a book called The Piety of John Calvin by uh, Lewis Ford Battles. It shows his humor. He wrote hymns. I greet thee whom I sure redeem more. That's Cal that was your dad's favorite hymn. Um, what are the great hymns of faith? He wrote poetry. Luther was the heart of the Reformation. Calvin was the brains. He hammered out uh, Augustinian theology for that day and age. If you read his Institutes of the Christian Religion, two volumes long, those are written for lay people, not for theologians. And he'll give you a great exposition on the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, the Ten Commandments. And um, I heard a Roman Catholic priest once say, that's the greatest theological treatise ever written. I said, whoa, glad you think so. Um, Cal Calvin knew nothing about the five points of Calvinism. They were hammered out 55 years after he died. What happened is the Reformed Church in the Netherlands, uh, they had a pastor named Jacob Arminius in the, in, a, in the 1600s, and he was preaching pretty heretical stuff. And they put him on trial, and, and they convicted him at what was called the Synod of Dort, D-O-R-D-T. And out of that synod came what were called the canons, C-O-N-O-N, not like canon, like yardstick, measuring stick. Um, the canons of the Synod of Dort, and there were five of them, against Jacob Arminius. And the first one was total depravity, and then next week we'll look at the U, unconditional election. Then third, two weeks from today, we'll look at L, which is the one most people choke on, limited atonement. And uh, then I is ir irresistible grace. And then P is the perseverance of the saints. Then our last class, we will do nothing but have Q&A. I'm sorry, yes, do you have a handout? I, think I do. You know, I am terrible on uh, administrative junk like this. There's a handout that tells you where we're going. I'll just, if you don't have, okay. You know, I just realized this week, I looked in my file, I didn't have my own handout, so I'm gonna take one. Now this will show you where we're going. And um, one of the most important things here is, um, you'll see, I make myself available. Like if you wanna ask a question, we don't have time, or you might be reticent to ask it in front of people, I'm available all the time. Here's my number, email, call me. I'd glad, gladly go where you are, meet with you, talk theology. Um, so I make myself totally accessible and this should generate a lot of questions and maybe some discomfort uh, with you. Um, you're not going to believe any of this stuff. You can't believe Reformed theology unless you believe the Bible to be, in the words of our Presbyterian confessions, the inspired, infallible Word of God. If you don't believe that, uh, which our former denomination got away from that, and that's why we got away from them, uh, then anything goes. And if you don't like something, you just kind of, well, I didn't see that. But, you know, as Presbyterian-type Reformed Christians, 
my philosophy is scripture is something we attend to, not contend with. If you're a person who wants to contend, you battle the Bible, this is, I'm going to give you a lot to battle. Um, but I really believe the posture of a faithful, humble Christian is you bring yourself, all of your beliefs, continually, daily, under the Word of God and allow His reforming Word to reform you and your beliefs and your morals and your way you live your life. That's a daily exercise. That's why it's so important to read the Bible daily. Uh, when I was a student in seminary, the first semester, I read something by Luther, and he told his preaching students, he said, you're not going to be a good preacher unless you read the Bible through every year. I was like, I want to be a good preacher. So I'm on my 45th time straight through the Bible. I've learned more. That's honed me in ways I can't even tell you. It's like I can't tell you what Ann fixed last Tuesday night for dinner, but it nourished me. And I think that's a discipline, not just pastors, but every Christian. Because you're being inundated by all kinds of stuff, and you don't even know it, through social media, TV, radio, working on you. And if you think a 20-minute sermon every week is going to, you know, combat that, <laughs> you're fooling yourself. Immerse yourself daily in the Word of God. That's what Calvin and Luther did. Okay, let's talk about total depravity. Um, I'm going to tell you first what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that you and I are totally bad, totally sinful. The totally part uh, has nothing to do with that. And depravity is another synonym for sinful. It doesn't mean we're t totally evil or bad. What it does mean is that there is no part of human nature since the fall of Adam and Eve that hasn't been tainted in some way by sin. Let, let me bring that down to earth. That means that, um, as Reinhold Niebuhr again says, even in our best deeds, we still sin. What does that mean? It's kind of like the proverbial boy scout who walks the little old lady across the street. You know, very few people can ever do that without down deep inside going, wonder who's watching and sees this and if I'll get credit for it. We rarely do anything totally disinterested. Um, maybe sometimes we do, but it just means that there's no area of our lives that sin hasn't permeated, tainted to some extent. Uh, a lot of times people will come to me, you know, for counseling, or whatever, and they're all upset because they feel guilty about something. Now there's rational guilt and there's irrational guilt, and I try to help them see that. But if they're suffering from rational guilt, I always say, praise the Lord. Great. They're not, they're not expecting me to say that. They want me to remove their guilt. They don't want to feel guilt. My friends, when you and I feel guilty, guess what? That's evidence that the Holy Spirit has not deserted you. He's alive and well. And there's some things that you and I should feel guilty about. Um, but always counter that with Romans 8, verse 1. I carry this verse around with me all the time. I quote it to myself every day. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we're all sinners. And when we sin, if you feel guilty, then confess your sin. Uh, if you mess up, fess up. Keep short accounts with God. Confess your sin and then 
pardon yourself by saying to yourself, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Tim Keller, um, who's an acquaintance of mine, we've met quite a few times, he has this great quote, and I can never uh, remember it totally, but I say it to myself all the time in my own paraphrase. But here's the actual quote. He says, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Anybody see Schindler's List? Remember that movie, Schindler's List? Raise your hand if you've seen that. Remember the scene, it's the commandant of the camp. He's up in his quarters, very nicely furnished. He's finely dressed in his German officer's uniform. And he puts Wagner on the phonograph, and he's playing that. And uh, here's this really highbrow, cultured guy. Then he walks over to the window, overlooks the, the uh, compound, and he calmly picks up a rifle. And he sticks it out the window, and he sights on just a, a, a random inmate, prisoner, that's walking along. And where did that come from? This cultured guy, where did that come from? A father was getting dressed, and his little girl came in and said, uh, Daddy, where are you going? He said, well, I've got a physical. I'm uh, <clears throat> with my doctor because I'm going to take out an insurance policy for half a million dollars, and I've got to take this physical. And the little girl says, what does that mean? He says, well, if, if I were to ever die, you would get 500000 500, You and Mommy would get $500,000. And the little girl said, a piece? <laughs> where did that come from? Um, <laughs> where did that come from? Um, back in the early 20th century, the editor of the Times of London uh, asked readers to submit an essay entitled, What is Wrong with the World? And he said he would print the best entries. And one was submitted by a, a lay theologian uh, and a writer of detective novels named G.K. Chesterton. And he, his entry was this, and it got published in the London Times. It says, Dear Editor, what is wrong with the world? I am. You see, Chesterton got it. He realized that he was a sinner uh, and that his life, to some extent, he was a, actually a Roman Catholic, but a pretty good Roman Catholic. Uh, I've never talked to him because he died way long time ago. But I have an idea he would affirm total depravity. Um, again, I want to re reiterate, total depravity does not mean that you and I and everyone is totally bad. Um, that it's, total depravity is different from utter depravity, which would mean that people are as, as wicked and evil and sinful as they can possibly be. Uh, no one has ever been utterly depraved. Even Adolf Hitler wasn't utterly depraved. In fact, Hitler loved children. Um, total depravity um, says that you and I are made in the image of God. Genesis 3, you go back there and you see we're made in God's image. And, um, and then the fall happens. And during the fall, what happens is that what happened was that Adam and Eve, and then in a federalist way, 
all future humanity was deformed. You know, I was studying to be a veterinarian in uh, college until the Lord turned me around. And I love animals of all kinds. And uh, after becoming a pastor, I realized that men and women, we're the only species of animal that can be less than what God's created us to be. You know, a, a rabbit doesn't sin. Uh, a coyote doesn't, oh yes, he, he killed my dog. No, he was just being a coyote. Uh, and if it's your dog or another rabbit or something like that. No, animals don't, with a malevolence, plot and plan. We're the only being that can act like less than what we are. And that's because of total depravity. We're, we're tainted by, by sin. Um, Luther described the disciple this way, using the Latin phrase, said, just, uh, simo justus et peccator, meaning the paradox of being human is that simultaneously we are both justified in Christ and sinner at the same time. Uh, I ran into a uh, a guy on Thursday, and he owns a business here in town. He says, I'm, I'm trying to disciple one of my employees, and this is a guy that's gotten into some kind of Christian sect, and they've told him you can actually be sinless in this life. Uh, anybody here know anybody, or maybe did you grow up in the Nazarene church? I have some Nazarene friends, and uh, in fact, one came through the door one time here, and they said, we're from such and such a Nazarene church, and I said, well, sorry about the... Uh, corporate prayer of confession, and they said, well, I didn't pray it, because I didn't need to. I mean, they really believed that they were not sinners anymore. Well, back to, you know, empirical evidence. Um, that's not Luther. That's not Augustinian theology. That's not what Calvin was all about. That's not what the canons of Dort are all about. We're sinners and justified in Christ at the same time. What total depravity does mean is that there, every facet of our nature, our body, our mind, our spirits, have been tainted to some extent by sin. I was saying to somebody the other day, they were telling me, you know, this COVID pandemic, uh, you know, the, the suicides have skyrocketed. There's all kinds of mental, emotional health issues that are surfacing because of that. I said, yeah, but, you know, it's always been that way. You know, uh, we're all mentally ill. We've always been. In the fall, every part of our being fell, uh, which means your mind. So, I, you know, I'm glad this church is behind NAMI, and we're trying to take away stigma of mental illness. I'm mentally ill. I've always been mentally ill to some extent because I don't have the mind. My mind continues to need reforming, because it's less than what God would want it to be. And you do that by bringing your mind under the word of God. Um, <clears throat> here's a question. If you're going to be a Reformed theologian, you need to get this question right. Are you and I sinners because we sin? Or do we sin because we're sinners? Think about it. Are you and I sinners because we sin? Or do we sin because we're sinners? It makes all the difference in the world in how you answer that. 
If you say, well, I'm a sinner because I sin, that implies that well, maybe if you didn't sin, you wouldn't be a sinner. You'd be okay. The Nazarenes think, I, I'm not, I don't sin, so I'm not a sinner. Total depravity says, you sin, I sin. I sin every day, without exception. Um, because that's my very nature. It's baked into me. It's, it taints every part of my being. Um, i got to battle sin. And sometimes I win. Most of the time I lose. Um, but there is therefore no, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus if I repent of that sin and turn it over. So never despair because you're totally depraved. <laughs> uh, be glad when you feel guilty. That means the Holy Spirit's alive and at work in you. Now, I've, I've put this, these verses from Jeremiah 17 up here um, because in verse 10, uh, God answers the question, you know, do you sin because you're a sinner or, do you, or do you, are you a sinner because you sin? He says the, the heart, the human heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick. Who can understand it? Implying it, nobody can except God himself. And I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Whoa, if we got that, we'd be in big trouble. But that's not the whole word. Uh, the gospel is that God doesn't do it. We deserve that. That's what we deserve. But because of Christ, he's taken our sin upon himself. Um, Satan's biggest lie, well, let me put it this way. There are only two world religions. You knew that, didn't you? There's only two. There's the gospel of grace, and there is everything else. Mormonism, Buddhism, Islam, name your poison. Everything else is some form of works righteousness, where I need to do something to get closer to God, to merit his favor, blah, 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 blah. Um, next week, we'll see just how utterly possible that is, but I'm going to steal my own thunder and give you an illustration because I encounter too many mature Christians that I think are mature who tell me if I say, are you assured of your salvation? They will answer, well, they think they're being humble. Well, I just hope my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. I had an elder in my church in Dallas came in, told me he had stage four terminal cancer. This guy, I, I sent guys to him to be discipled by this guy. He was one of the most mature, he's a doctor, brilliant guy, on fire for Christ. And I said, Bob, I probably don't need to ask you this, but I'm your pastor. And it was back in 2009, it was the 500th anniversary of Calvin's birth. And I was reading all these books by Calvin. And Calvin's biggest thing as a pastor is he wanted everybody in his church to die with the assurance of their salvation. So I said, Bob, are you sure? You know where you're going if you were to die? And he looked at me and said, well, Ron, I just hope my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. I knew him really well, so I, I said, I wouldn't say it to you. If I don't know you, I wouldn't say it. But I knew him. So I said, Bob, when did you become a Muslim? And he said, I'm not a Muslim. He said, I said, that's Muslim theology. This idea that, you know, your good deeds outweigh your bads. You know what uh, Mohammed wrote? He wrote, 
I don't know if I'm saved because I don't know if I'll ever know if my good deeds outweigh my bad. Every Muslim dies in terror. If I, believe, if I was a Muslim and I really believed it, I'd, I'd be going, okay, bye, y'all. And I'd blow y'all up. Because that's the only guarantee of eternal life. You martyr yourself. That's the only guarantee. And, you know, how do you know if your good deeds outweigh your bad? But that doesn't matter. Let me give you an illustration. Sin has created a, a, a vast chasm, this total depravity, created a vast chasm between a holy, righteous, pure God and you and me as finite, sinful human beings. Uh, now, you may be thinking, well, you know, I'm, I'm not really that bad. I've never murdered. I don't embezzle. I've never, you know killed anybody. I don't do, I'm not Adolf Hitler. I'm a different boat than him. So certainly God, hope, grades on the curve. Um, let me try to disabuse you of that idea, that somehow you can get across this chasm through anything you can do. Let's say we go to the Grand Canyon. Now, I've never been there. I've flown over. I've seen it from the air. My understanding, it's about a mile across. Okay. So let's say God's on the other side in all of his purity, and that's our goal, to get to God. You and I and everybody on the other side, everybody in the world's on the other side. So we all line up, and we're, we're going to jump, see if we can jump across. Um, now, we bring in Bob Beeman. Now, Bob Beeman won the uh, Olympic gold medal in the long jump in the 1968 Olympics. It was the longest standing Olympic record. It was recently broken. I don't know the guy's name. But let's, for the sake of the argument, Bob Beeman has jumped further than anyone in human history. And so, you know, I run out and give it my best. I get maybe, you know, 10 feet out, and I wind up at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. Maybe you're a better jumper than me, and you get out 15 feet. We're all finding ourselves at the bottom of the canyon, dead. Here comes Bob Beeman. He's got the best shot of anybody in the world of getting across that canyon. He, he jumped 31.9 or something like that. That's a long way. That's only about 5,000 and 100 and something feet short of the other side of the Grand Canyon. So here's the best guy. He winds up in the same place as you and me. That's why Satan's big myth is that if you're a fairly good person, you think you're in a different boat than, let's say, Adolf Hitler or Mao Zedong or Paul Pot or, you know, name Pretty Boy Floyd. Reality is, total depravity says that everybody's in the same boat. Everybody's in the same boat. You don't have one leg up on Hitler in terms of entering the fulfilled kingdom of God, unless somebody from outside yourself makes a way to get across that Grand Canyon. Guess what? That's the good news of the gospel of grace. None of us deserve it. I don't deserve heaven any more than Adolf Hitler. Oh, yes, you do, Ron. You, you haven't killed six million people. Um, I don't deserve heaven any more than Adolf Hitler. I have no more right on that than him. I'm in the same boat next to him. There's no more hope for me. God answers our dilemma by building the bridge across the canyon. The bridge is not a wooden bridge. It's a flesh and blood bridge. 
It's a person, God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. And that is our only hope, those of us that are totally depraved, which is everybody. And, you know, I'm going to go from preaching to meddling here and then quit. I, I can't resist God's last verse here. Like the par- partridge that gathers a brood that she did not hatch, so is he who gets riches, but not by justice. This last part of this commentary on total depravity is really about economics and about money. See, now I see I'm going from preaching to meddling. My premise is that nothing twists yours and my faith more than anything else than economics. I'm more likely to follow Jesus faithfully if it doesn't hit me in the pocketbook. Um, Or if I can make money (laughs) following Jesus in some way, I'm all in, man, praise the Lord. And that's why you see so much of this crud going on in the lives of high-powered, affluent pastors and everything. Um, I'm going to really go from preaching to meddling now. Uh, One of the ways to combat total depravity is get in line with the Word of God. One of those words is that, basically, I'll put in the form of a question, are you faithfully invested in what God is doing in the world? With your money. And I, I'm not on the staff here. I'm not, this is not a push for make first president budget. God doesn't need a dime of our money. We need to be faithfully invested. Let me give you an example. I'm a sports nut. I love all sports, just about. But I have no interest in horse racing at all. Uh, when we lived in Dallas, we got the Dallas Morning News, and we have Lone Star Park up there, and they have, you know, it's a big-time horse racing thing. I skip that page every day. But baseball, football, man, I'm there. But what if you called me one day and said, Ron, I hacked into your bank account and I put your entire savings on a horse in the fifth race tomorrow at Lone Star Park. Guess what? You think I'd look at the horse page the next day? No, I wouldn't. Because I'd be out at Lone Star Park. And I'd be cheering my guts out for that horse because my life's suddenly, you see, I'm not interested in horse racing, but now I've become invested. If you're not interested in the things of God in the kingdom, you come to church, I hope this is over soon. Uh, maybe it's because you're not well invested. One of the ways to combat total depression, I've got to tell you a joke, is this guy goes out to the, the park and he's, uh, he's heard that, you know, you've got to find a system. And he's watching these races, and he knows there's a, a, a Roman Catholic priest there. He's got the collar on. And he goes down um, before the race, and he blesses one of the horses. Every race, that horse wins. I got my system. He waits for the priest that goes out on the track. He blesses the horse. So he runs to the window, puts everything he has on that horse. The gates open. That horse comes charging out, gets about 30 feet down, and drops over dead. The guy's like, I've just lost everything. He finds the priest and he goes, you, you, you've messed up my life. And the priest says, what? Yeah, I figured out a system. I saw you bless every horse and they won. And then that last race, you blessed the horse. He said, you're not Roman Catholic, are you? And he goes, no, I'm a Presbyterian. He said, oh, I was giving that horse last rites. 
Anyway. Okay. Two things I want you to take away from today. Number one, I, we are sinners. In every aspect of our lives, we're tainted in some way by sin. And number two, that I'm totally incapable in any way of, of curing the illness. But here's the good news of the gospel of grace. God has done it for us. When Christ cried out on the cross, it is finished. That means it is finished. He took 180% of our sin, its payment, punishment, upon himself. And so never be in despair because you're totally depraved. Be glad that, you know, in 2 Corinthians it says, I think it's 521, that Christ actually became sin for us. Here's the sinless God in the flesh who actually becomes not totally depraved, utterly depraved by taking our sin so that we not, need not fear condemnation, hell, whatever you want to call it. Um, so, simul justus et peccator. We are both simultaneously sinners and justified by Christ at the same 